Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Multiracial at Pitt podcast, a new show where we explore the unique and exciting stories of culturally diverse students as they navigate formative years at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm your host, Priya Ray, and I'm a fourth year neuroscience major with minors in chemistry and creative writing. I'm also the public relations chair for the Multiracial Student Association at Pitt, and my goal is to amplify the voices of all Pitt students while shedding light on the social nuances that influence how we think, speak, and behave towards others. Our club is a safe space for students from all backgrounds to share their experiences in the world and find support within each other. If you have an idea for an episode topic or just have an interest in appearing on the show, don't be afraid to shoot me an email at priaray at pit.edu or follow and DM us on Instagram at multiracial at pit. All of our links are provided in the podcast bio. And so without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Priya and I'm here today with Hi, I'm Dr. Sylvia Owusu-Ansa. And we're going to be talking um, a little bit about what it's like to be the EMS medical director at UPMC Children's Hospital, um, your cultural identity, um, just overall being a doctor, working in healthcare, and other things like that. So stay tuned because this is going to be a super interesting episode, very healthcare focused. I know that a lot of us at Pitt are pre-med, and so I, I look forward to this conversation. So um, first, I want to start by asking you a little bit about your uh, academic background, where you went to college, and what led you to uh, the path that you've chosen today. So interestingly enough, um, since the age of seven, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Um, And in elementary school, I would draw pictures, box pictures of hospitals and myself in a white coat. Um, It wasn't until college that I confirmed that that's what I wanted to be. Uh, I am a very, I guess people would consider religious person or person of faith. And so um, I was kind of very confused in college, as most people are, as to what I wanted to do or what I was destined to do, so to speak. And so I took some time to fast and pray for 21 days. And then I had actually had a vision of myself in a white coat uh, with disheveled clothes and hair, um, which I imagine was because med school is so crazy and rigorous. Um, and And I just took that as and ran with it to say that yeah, what I want to be since I was seven is is the right choice. That's very fascinating. We're, we're, so what led you to have this um, sort of like enlightening, life-altering experience? Well, you know, I, I focused, like most people, I was pre-med and I was doing okay in pre-med. I wasn't, you know, stellar. Um, I was a moderate student, you know, mediocre student, I would say. And, and I knew to get into medical school, you needed to, you know, make the grades and get you know, pretty much straight A's. And um, so I was beginning to doubt myself and potentially my ability to do science or do medicine or get into medical school, pass the MCATs, which is the standardized exam you need to take to get into medical school. Um, And so I didn't want to kind of waste my time going down this pathway if that's not what was really meant for me. Um, And so in that struggle, that's when I decided to kind of take a pause and a break and figure out what it really was that I was destined to do. Did you figure this out during a gap year or I know you did an MPH. Was Mm -hmm. it around this time that you had that? So no, it was actually during my four years. So I went to the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York and upstate New York. And it was during that four years, I want to say maybe probably um, sophomore year or so um, when, when the classes were getting a little bit more rigorous 
and hard, especially the science classes. What did you major in? Biochemistry. Okay. Yeah. You, you have that here. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So could you talk a little bit about what your MPH experience was like? Because I know a lot of people are super interested in that path. It's a really rewarding path, I think. Yeah. So master's in public health. I, for that, I would have to go a little bit back in time and tell you a little bit about my childhood. And so growing up, I lived with my mom and my stepdad, who I call my dad, and he worked for the World Health Organization. Oh, that's cool. And so I had the great opportunity uh, during high school to live in Namibia, Southwest Africa, at the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. So kind of reminds me of what we went through with COVID or what we're going through with COVID of people just not knowing what the virus was about, not knowing how you were going to catch it or if you're going to catch it or if you caught it, if you're going to die from it. It was that kind of same, I don't want to say hysteria, but same misinformation in the beginning. And uh, it was a very scary time. Either way, he went down there to advise the health minister on HIV and AIDS in Namibia, Southwest Africa, uh, which was initially under the protectorate, almost like Puerto Rico in the United States, of South Africa. And when my dad went down there, Namibia became its own country. So it was kind of really cool in that way. Um, And so I would listen to his stories of, you know, orphans from HIV AIDS or street kids from HIV AIDS. And he had to go around the country and encourage healthcare providers on how to best take care of people with HIV AIDS and more importantly, how to prevent it. Um, And so I was intrigued by that of providing healthcare for many people in some ways, as opposed to like one-on-one. And it was also a time that, um, so at the time, Nelson Mandela became the first head of state of South Africa. We were in Cape Town at the time. So I think all of those, you know, markedly historical events that surrounded that also had an influence. But it was more my father and his journey in public health and working for the top public health organization in the world that I think influenced me quite a bit. That's really cool. What was your dad's position exactly? So he was advisor to the health minister of the country of Namibia on HIV AIDS specifically. What, care. what was the outcome of his um, advice and what what like what did that teach you specifically? Um it was it's interesting what it taught me and I I guess, you know, that's that's a great question and, and thinking about the things that I do now, I realize it's almost come full circle is that you have to involve community and you have to ask the community what they want and what their needs are. You know, a lot of the stumbling blocks for my dad was, you know, a lot of times institutions, healthcare institutions or academic institutions come in and we think we have an idea of what people need um, and what we, we should do for them. But, you know, in essence, what, what, what it really is, is that, that you need to find out from the community what is it that they want or need and or need from you. And so he hit a lot of stumbling blocks because initially the pathway was kind of, this is what we recommend, this is what we think we should do. But he came across a lot of cultural barriers, yes. religious barriers, especially when it comes to HIV AIDS, where you have a sexually transmitted disease. You can imagine a lot of, you know, the cultural differences and in, in, in ways of speaking to sexual education and things of that nature, especially in the early 90s, which is the time um, that this all happened. And so, realizing that you really need feedback and you really need to integrate with the community and not just tell the community what they need. I actually took a class um, concerning public health, especially in areas such as Africa. And I definitely agree that if you want to reach a community, you have to um, sort of adapt to the community's cultural practices and learn to just 
be how they are if you want to like get through to them because you can't just come in there with your you know your american ideals and your american practice practices and expect to make a change because it's that it's, it's not going to be seamless like that um so i think that's definitely really important and i think that especially after the covid pandemic which was insanely traumatizing for everybody um that just becomes more and more relevant so i think that's really cool um I want to like ask you about your like ethnic and cultural background because I think that's like a really big part of just like um, getting into a field like this. So could you tell me about that? Yeah. So I grew up. I'm the daughter of West African immigrants. My both of my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. Actually, from the Kumasi region, which is a very popular region. Um, our tribe is a very popular tribe, the Ashanti tribe. So that's where kente cloth comes from, and that's where a lot of the African symbols that people wear and the things that when it, people think about. Africa or the continent of Africa and getting back to their roots, they think about things like the kente cloth, items, I should say, like the kente cloth or certain types of African drums and things of that nature. A lot come from that culture. Um, The divergence there or the tricky part there is, you know, sometimes I argue that as much as I'm very proud to be an Ashanti, uh, they're probably the very same people that sent a lot of African-Americans here to the United States that sold their own people as slaves, right? So, um, Ghana is one of one of the main countries where we had a lot of slave trade, meaning the United States uh, and the Caribbean. Uh, you know, a lot of slaves came from Ghana, the West Coast, Ghana, Nigeria, some of these other countries, Ivory Coast, things of that nature. Um, but interestingly enough, early in my life, I grew up in a predominantly white um, community. Um, at first, I grew up in a mixed community in Lexington, Kentucky. So I grew up in the South initially up until age seven. And then at age seven, I moved to Concord, New Hampshire, where I was the only black person in my school for the most part. So except I think by fourth grade, there was another black family that moved in, but I think they were multi multiracial family. So similar, but different dynamics, right? And, and the way you're perceived and in your experiences. Um, and so, you know, I was the sole representative of what it was to be a black person or what black people experience. And you can imagine as a kid, that's a heavy burden to be, uh, to, to, to carry, um, you know, as you know, so if I'm doing very well, it's like, oh, black people are really smart. If I'm not, the yeah. black people aren't, you know, I used to joke that uh, at the time, you know, Oprah was like, you know, at the height of her stardom. And I used to joke that Oprah was my cousin and people would believe me because I'm the only <laughs> black person that they knew. Um, and, 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 and that just speaks to my lack of self-esteem at the time because I, you know, to draw the the right attention, I what I felt to be the right attention, I had to be connected to some famous black celebrity, yeah, right? Yeah. I couldn't just be, be Sylvia, yeah. right? Um, and then from there, transitioned to Namibia, Southwest Africa that we talked about to finish out high school. So I went to three different high schools um, and then came back. I was born in Boston initially, Boston to Lexington, Kentucky to Concord, New Hampshire, to Namibia, Southwest Africa, and then back to Boston again. And so finished out high school in Boston and had to readjust um, to being an American again, really, um, after having lived in Southern Africa. Uh, and even there, I dealt with prejudices there for being, not so much being black, because, you know, in some ways I'm part of the majority, but for being American. So it's called a Yankee. Um, oh. So that, yeah. So, yeah, you would think that you could, you know, so, you know, it just goes to show there's, you know, prejudice and and, and um, barriers wherever you go. So the big issue is I was this American girl. 
Um, and, you know, one of the British students, because I went to an international school, would call me a Yankee, like in a bad way. And then it was also expected of me as the American girl to be up on all the latest music and fashion oh. and have all that, you know. Wait, so were bring. the people who were calling you Yankee, were they also um, black students? So that's a great question. So the one kid that called me Yankee, he was, he was a white British mm. male. But I ha- had one of my, <clears throat> excuse me. African colleagues um, tell me because of the way I talked and I imagine from what they I, they didn't I didn't make the picture of what they envisioned an African American to be I call myself black in the way of I come from a descendant of Ghanaian immigrants as opposed to a descendant of you know slaves in the United States um, and I remember him telling me that you must have grown up on the white side of Boston um, and that was in in Africa, you know what I mean? On the continent of Africa, uh, South- Southwest Africa. Strange. Um, yeah. I-, I think probably because of the depiction of African-Americans in a certain way that they dressed, in a certain way that they talked, right? Yeah. When you're watching, you know, the popular shows at that time were what, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, the Cosby show is a little bit, you know, I'd probably fit a little bit more with the Cosby show than anything. But if you think about the 90s, hip-hop 90s, I didn't fit that you know, hip-hop 90s genre yeah, yeah. in the way I presented myself. I loved the music, and I loved the genre, and I loved the culture, but I didn't present myself in that manner. And I think for those who went to the international school, that's how they thought of, you know, a Black American, how they should present themselves and how they should be. How did your parents react to the cultural expectations of you in America, and how did they encourage you to, like, react to those, given that they were immigrants? Yeah, I think... You know, a, probably a lot of children of immigrant families can attest to this, that for them, education's number one. <laughs> um, and just focusing on your education. You know, I, th- I think, you know, then compared to now, in, in, you know, raising my kids, I want to say my parents were probably less emotionally in tune with what I was going through. And I was probably less likely to let them know where I was emotionally, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so... The advice was, you know, do good in school and, you know, keep up the, you know, you know, the grades and things of that nature. I wasn't allowed to go to a lot of parties. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of movies. You know, there was no social media then. There was no email there. There was really no Internet. I mean, email was just starting. So um, a lot of restrictions. Um, You know, somebody would say, you know, right now they'd probably say that's extremely strict parenting. My child tells me I'm extremely strict and. You know, she does a lot more things than, you know, I could ever imagine at her age of 14. Um, and so, you know, I always knew that my parents loved me and supported me and cared for me. But that, you know, kind of like, you know, mom, dad, pep talk of what I'm going through as a teenager and stuff kind of never really happened. Um, Interesting. In the way of um, emotions. But um, I would say just looking at their work ethic and learning from their work ethic um, and their role modeling. Um, especially my dad, was very impactful for me. That's really good. Um, I think that a lot of children of immigrant parents can attest to the work ethic of their parents and how it sets an example for them. But I definitely think not just for children of immigrants, but for just children of POC families like myself, there is a lack of mental health support. And it's almost seen as like, like a weakness. And given that I am a person of mixed identity, it's even harder for me to find like mental health support because um, being mixed, it's like you're in such a niche spot and it's sort of hard to find people that have similar experiences to you. So going off of that, 
Um, could you talk a little bit about the importance of mental health for people of color working in the medical field? Um, uh, just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say overall, uh, mental health is extremely important for, for everybody involved. But, um, you know, recently we've been talking about doing more research in the way of, you know, particularly black teenagers and suicide. So uh, there is data out there. We do know that black teen teenagers, there's an increasing rate of not suicidal ideation and actual suicide suicide attempts and suicide completions that I don't think we're talking enough about. Um, I think what's particularly concerning and scary is that um, a lot of these teenagers are in their preteen um, years. So these aren't, and, and that's not to say that anybody who's thinking of suicide, um, you know, at any age is better than another. But as Dr. Tammy Benton, uh, she's the chief psychiatrist, uh, the chief of psychiatry, I should say, or chair of psychiatry at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia put it, when you think about teenagers, they want to live forever, right? Teenagers think they're immortal. So the fact that a teenager is thinking about killing themselves really have to hone in on that. That's a really, um, that's a really scary thought and concept of, you know, where you're in this stage of your life where most of your colleagues think they're invincible and immortal um, and you want to end your life. Um, yeah, I think we have we have a lot of work to do in this space. One, to, you know, acknowledge that it exists. Um, two, to be able to talk about it. Uh, the other thing that, you know, data shows for people of color is they don't get the help that they need. They don't have the access um, and me being an emergency department physician know that the one time that they may get access or may get help is in the emergency department. Um, less likely to follow up outpatient. Um, we don't have enough data to say why. You know, we can speculate. I don't want to speculate. And what we want to know, we don't know for sure why this happens. And I want to say, you know, because then, then you get into this thing of like, well, black people are like this and black people are like that. And you don't, you, you want to know the real data of, why this is, but we, we know that those are those are facts and that there's a lot more that we need to do in this space. But we definitely need to bring attention, a call to action um, when it comes to people of color um, and the misconceptions and the stigma around it. I know that as someone who has worked in research, that uh, lots of research studies do not include people of color in their data, um, which can, it just further, it further goes to exclude uh, black people and people of color from getting the medical help, the, the medical information that they need. And I think that black people are also just less likely to follow up with outpatient because they feel like they're not going to be believed, they're, like they're not going to be taken seriously. Um, I know that when I had COVID, I was really scared to go to the emergency room because I wasn't sure if they would believe my symptoms. They did. Um, but I, it's just, it's always a concern. Um, so as far as Pittsburgh in particular, what do you think uh, the current state is like for uh, like black and P POC physicians? We have a lot of work to do. Um, we, you know, as, as POC physicians, I, I think we, so let me, let me rewind a little bit. I think pre COVID, even more importantly, pre the murder of George Floyd, um, there was this, it wasn't a priority, right? 
in the way of many things globally. So diversity, equity, and inclusion as we know it, especially for people of color, was not a priority on many people's radars. Um, only for those who have been doing this as a, you know, as their, you know, life's blood um, and doing it for the sake of doing it. Those are the only people that continue to do it. Now, I think the murder of George Floyd exposed a lot of things and touched a lot of people in ways that, you know, a lot of the DEI initiatives previously somehow had not been able to. DEI initiatives? Sorry, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. Okay. Um, and so with that, I will say that in, in particular, Pitt has been intentional and purposeful in making a change. But because we have lacked the numbers, because we have lacked, in some ways, the initiatives earlier on, we're a little bit behind. But what I'm really excited about is moving forward, especially with, um, for I will say, for the School of Medicine in particular, with Dean Shaker, um, he has been very intentional and purposeful in providing um a better environment for diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in the way of recruitment and ten- retention, not only of like medical students and trainees, but of faculty members too, right? So it's one thing to try to bring more people of color into the space. It's another thing to allow them to make it an environment comfortable for them to stay, right? So, um, and it's been less about the checkboxes with the new leadership regime and more about, yeah, this is what we need to do. We Our patients need diversity, right? There's a lot of data on, you know, people do better with racial concordance. If they see a doctor or a healthcare provider that looks like them, uh, they're more likely to open up, they're more likely to follow through on their healthcare, you know, they're more likely to have trust, right? You talked about lack of trustworthiness within the community or within the healthcare space, right? And you use yourself as an example. Um, these are all true. These are all facts um, that we know. Um, you also speak to research. It, there's a paucity of data as far as people of color, but there's also, what we also have to be careful in research is those research studies that we do have people of color to make sure that those that those data points aren't skewed. Yes, yes. I agree. Right? Um, and... And so that we're either including a population or excluding a population in a way that harms, further mm-hmm. harms their health care. To perpetuate like a prior belief or like exactly. a stereotype. Exactly, right. Yeah. That's one thing about research that I think is um, sort of interesting because when I worked in research, I, I guess I didn't fully understand um, how we were accurately getting these results from different races Um, So that's just, I think, another thing to look out for when doing medical research, because it's like it it just it's really essential to accurately portray different communities so that you can accurately improve their health and actually help them instead of just keeping them unhealthy. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I agree. So. Uh, One thing that I want to talk about is uh, curated safe spaces for students of color within universities like Pitt. At Pitt, there are multiple organizations like the one that I'm 
I'm in um, the Multiracial Student Association. There's also BAS and other uh, smaller organizations as well. So um, how do you feel about these cultural organizations uh, being safe spaces for students of color? Did you take advantage of the ones that were at your college? And do you feel that they are only helpful or absolutely essential for long-term success in mental health? Yeah, so I, I... For myself, I would say I didn't take advantage of them as much as I should have in the way of like, I'll say, for instance, I'll give the example of the Student National Medical Association. That's not on the undergrad level, but I didn't. Um, but, you know, I did create a safe, safe space for myself in uh, the Master of Public Health program at Hopkins. I started the Black Student Union there at Hopkins for the Master's of Public Health program to create that safe space. I co- co-founded and co-led um, that that space. Um, uh, so what I'd say, it is essential. Um, it is essential to be able to talk with people that are similar to you, that have had similar experiences than you. Um, and, and to your point or, you know, what you're alluding to as well, you know, it, it helps with the mental health aspect. Um, so I am the sole pediatric emergency medicine physician, black pediatric med- emergency medicine physician at the Children's Hospital. And there are days where things that happen to me that, you know, I, you know, I know that other people of color experience that I can't share with my colleagues. It's not that I, they don't care. It's not that they wouldn't be there for me. It's just a different experience um, to be able to support and ally for, right? And I'll use the example of my own children. So I have mixed race children. And I tell my husband all the time, our experience is not the same as their experience. We can't, I can't pretend as a a black mother to understand what my, you know, multiracial child is going through in high school. You know, I'd be fooling myself because though we are similar in the fact that she may be looked upon as a brown or black person, in essence, she's, she's more, she's, I shouldn't say more than that, but she, she has multiple cultures that she recognizes and is a part of and, you know, should be able to tap into. And so we, to your point, we have to recognize that as well, that we can't, you know, overlap our experiences onto others um, in that way. But these groups, you know, help us to be able to feel more human. You know what I mean? Feel like we have shared experiences and feel like we belong, right? You know, a big part of it is feeling like you belong and you're not isolated and by yourself. Do you feel that, Uh, more hospitals would benefit from having like cultural support groups for different physicians? I definitely feel that way. We're trying to do that now. Um, I just kind of do that on my own by just reaching out to folks, um, whether it be on the trainee level or whether it be on the faculty level, just having small get togethers, you know, checking in via text messages, text messaging, excuse me, emailing, you know, just send out a, you know, big thing for Wakanda forever, you know, like get together for, you know, Wakanda forever, um, you know, movie night, you know, together kind of thing. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like I spoke of earlier, you know, somebody in my position where I don't see too many people that look like me, at least here in, in Pittsburgh, uh, in my, in my work or my career, it'd be helpful to have that. Now, interestingly enough, I came from DC it was almost like a utopia where Children's Hospital, I worked for there, there were like nine to ten other doctors that looked like me in the emergency department working. So in some ways I was, you know, 
I kind of had a misconception of that's how it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and realized that Pittsburgh's probably, the Pittsburgh dynamic is probably more common in healthcare than the DC dynamic that I experienced. What um, led you here, um, given your, you know, your different experiences in DC? Um, what led me here was pretty much the job. Um, I also, you know, in talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, not just from a color standpoint, the job I do is very unique, is a very unique niche. So, you know, I am a pediatrician that takes care of kids. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician that takes care of really, really sick kids or kids that need, you know, fixing in the way of, you know, um, repairing their wound with sutures or fix, helping to fix a broken bone. But I also make what we call an EMS physician, so emergency medical services physician. So I help to take care of kids outside the hospital, too, and I help to advise our EMS personnel. Like when you call 911, I help to tell them to educate them on how to best take care of children outside of the hospital. And usually the physicians that do that are trained in uh, in the adult world. We call them emergency medicine physicians or just EM physicians. Um, there are very few pediatricians that do what I do on the emergency medical services side. And so, you know, when you're applying for jobs and you're like, I do this triple threat thing that I do, a lot of folks are like, that sounds great, but we don't know where to put you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's almost back to like yeah, being a person of color, like, yeah, I'm used to this. You just don't know where I fit in, right? Um, and, and Pittsburgh got it right away. Not only that, uh, in having a family, it's very important to me that every part of my family or every aspect of my family also feels comfortable um, and the move is not just about me because you're you're changing the lives of three other people, my two daughters and my husband, to move here. And Pittsburgh was one of the few places that also advocated for my husband. He got his own separate interview. He actually graduated from Pitt through the uh, Bachelor's of Emergency Medicine program. He was mm-hmm. a paramedic firefighter at the time. Um, you know, they helped us out with schools, finding a neighborhood. So it was a holistic approach, which I appreciated um, that a lot of other cities didn't really bring to the forefront. Interesting. So you're the head of the EMS department. So I'm what we call the EMS medical director. So I don't, there's no real EMS department at Children's, but I'm basically in charge of anything that deals with, you know, children coming via the ambulance to the hospital. Do you think that uh, the way that current emergency medical technicians and physicians are trained to handle children, especially children of color, is appropriate or should it be modified? I think we have a, a ways to go there. Um, this is a pioneering space right now. Um, we're, we're just now touching the edge of even talking about healthcare diverse. I'm sorry, healthcare disparities in the emergency medical services space, especially when it comes to children of color. Um, so I recently, you know, um, is, has not been published yet, but sub- submitted for publication a study looking at children of color and asthma um, and whether there are differences there. And we found that there was a higher odds ratio of children of color having to take their albuterol or use their albuterol compared to their white counterparts. Um, You know, there's more to find out with that. That's basically all we conclude, uh, can conclude. We can speculate that, you know, we know that children of color have a higher burden of asthma. They have a higher severity of asthma mostly around, not around race and not around a biological concept of race, but around social determinants of health. So access to healthcare, education, education of of parents, 
um, where they live, um, food security, all those things, you know, add to your health. And when, you know, there's a really cool graph of a person that's broken down in percentages of what aspects of your health care really, you know, contribute to healthcare outcomes. The majority of that those that percentage is a, a social determinants of health or things of the environment. Not so much just going to the doctor and taking your medicine. That's only a small percentage of improving your healthcare outcomes. It's really the environment that you're surrounded by and the environment that you're living in that really um, takes an effect or makes an effect or has a positive and or negative um, outcome on your health. So do you think that social determinants matter more than... I don't know any like biological or like biological factors or anything. I think they all work together. I think okay. you have, you you have to, you know, you have to look at all aspects. But I what I will say is I think we have not given as much attention to social determinants of health as as we should because there there is a lot um, in the way of of social determinants of health impact on our health. Um, biological factors will always be important. Um, and as as a former biochemist, um, you know I'm I'm never going to deny that aspect, and you know how your receptors work in your body and things of that nature. You know, um, you know the nitty gritty, minute details of how the body works and responds to certain things. Um, but again, like I said, I think you know a huge factor that we've been missing out on for a while. I shouldn't say we. I'm sure there you know there've been researchers that have been doing this for a while, but now we're calling it to attention so that the public even knows what this word means, um, you know, needs to focus around that in the way of healthcare outcomes. Okay. Um, very interesting. Um, I, I want to uh, touch on your uh, MPH again and sort of how that curriculum and that uh, education helped you become more aware of the health disparities among people of color and, and, it, and also integrate that into your care. Yeah, so like I said, again, it goes back to being a 15-year-old in Southern Africa and witnessing firsthand how HIV and AIDS ravaged um, at least Southern Africa. I can't speak to the whole continent, obviously, because I didn't live throughout the whole continent. Um, And that always stuck with me. Um, And then reliving that through COVID. um, And I would say that during... You know, getting my public health degree, I spent a lot of time with school health, um, and I was in in Baltimore, which is a predominantly black city. Um, And so being in Baltimore and educating middle school and high school students about their health, um, you know, you realize that there was a a huge gap in even exposure to, you know, access to health care, you know, medications, medication use. you know, different various programs out there. You know, we, you can, the, 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 there's a width and breadth that we could talk about anywhere from infant and maternal uh, mortality, um, you know, to, like I said, asthma, uh, to geriatric care. Um, you know, so public health degree kind of opened my eyes to that as well. And not just from a domestic standpoint, meaning the United States, but as you can imagine, in a school like Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, you have people from all over the world, all over the globe. You have health ministers from various African countries, Asian countries, South America. So you get exposed to their disparities as well, the things that they're dealing with. I think was probably the most intriguing part of the education there was really the, the global experience of 
you know, finding out more about healthcare in Peru or Zimbabwe or Thailand um, and working closely with colleagues to figure out ways that we can improve the lives of people globally. So one of the things that the COVID pandemic showed me was that many people do do not have like a basic understanding of their health or how to combat the diseases that might present to us again also in the future. So how do we go about educating people so that they're prepared to deal with whatever life might throw at them, including another pandemic in the future, potentially, hopefully not, but. So there are a few things. I think we need to start early. We need to start talking to our kids. You know, of course, I'm biased as a pediatrician. Um, I think we, and, and let me say age appropriate or grade appropriate, right, in a grade appropriate way. You know, during the COVID pandemic, there were certain things I would talk to my, you know, especially when the death rates were extremely high. Um, there were certain things I would talk to my six-year-old about, now six-year-old, versus my 14-year-old, right? And wouldn't off-burden a lot of things to the six-year-old. And even my 14-year-old would be very careful as to how I would talk about things and phrase things. Um, I think it's very important. I think, you know, in the way that we began this podcast I think what COVID has helped to do in turning healthcare on its head is that healthcare needs to come to the community and not wait for the community to come to the healthcare institution. And so I think another way is to be very involved in our own communities when it comes to healthcare, meaning being out there, um, meaning going to town meetings, going to community centers, being very active in our schools and our science and STEM curriculum. Uh, By we, I'm speaking as about being a healthcare provider and fellow healthcare providers, uh, for instance, as an example, being involved in our health department um, and the things that they're doing. There are groups such as the Black... um, Health Equity Coalition that has done a lot of this work that has been out in the community, um, gaining the trust of the community, providing the data and the evidence-based medicine to then share with the rest of the world what's going on in our underserved communities that usually um, don't get a voice, right, um, or, or not paid attention to when it comes to health care disparities. Uh, they're getting the word out there. Uh, the community... Vitality Collaborative is another group, um, you know, with that crosses institutions between UPMC and Pitt. You have experts throughout the community um, to engage your community leaders, your churches, um, again, your schools early, not waiting for the next pandemic to come, but already beginning to have those conversations now on the tail of COVID. So how exactly do these organizations work to get people interested in taking care of their health? Um, I think one is engagement of the community leaders that that the community already trusts. Um, Having various kind of informational clinics within the community, um, having health fairs within the community, um, having access to, um, we did a lot of video conferences in the way of Zoom during COVID. Um, Zoom and Microsoft Teams where you could personally talk to a doc. Somebody in the community could personally talk to a doc and ask the questions that they would want to ask, but now they don't have to wait two weeks to follow up with somebody to ask those questions. Or um, the other um, ways ways to engage and to think about, we need to think about our communities 
um, that speak various languages and how we can best reach those communities as well um, and speak to them in their language, in their dialect. Um, and so, you know, they are part of the circle or community of the people of color as well. And so bridging, being able to bridge all kinds of gaps that way. Um, you know, we we when we were talking about COVID and education, we were thinking about ways of engaging different healthcare institutions in the way of EMS, public health, um, you know, healthcare staff in the way of physicians, nurses, um, you know, techs, and thinking about like the geriatric population, for instance, or the disabled, like, you know, how would they, if they needed to get a vaccine, how would they go to the clinic and get it? How would they be provided transport? Can they even get out of their apartment building and get down the stairs? Um, and so would in, literally engage in going to, you know, apartment buildings or homes, almost like a door-to-door kind of thing, um, to educate and to provide the vaccines that they needed in the way of COVID, using COVID as an example. So I think those are the those are the active active action things that that were done, and that we need to continue to do. Um, in in various aspects of healthcare, whether we're talking about heart attacks or renal disease and dialysis or uh, maternal and infant mortality, having those programs. um, I know like for instance, there's a Western diaper bank that helps provide for um, families within communities diapers. I mean, diapers are one of the more expensive things, right? Inflation's super high. None of us can barely afford to eat, let alone provide diapers and, and bottles for our children. And so there are programs out there like that, that that focus on that, on those aspects. So in your position at the hospital, you um, work to collaborate with a lot of these groups? I do. So the other position I have at the hospital is I am currently the Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion for the Department of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital. So what that means is that um, I work on programming for faculty members, um, pretty much like the pediatricians and the pediatric specialist at the Children's Hospital. So I'm I'm not in the leadership position for the entire hospital. So if there's other staff in the way of, let's say there's like a cafeteria staff or there's maintenance staff, I'm not in charge of that space Mm -hmm. or nursing, but the immediate like physicians and the trainees um, I work with Dr. Loretta Mateo, who's the vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, of that of the Department of Pediatrics to make changes for our our faculty members and for our patients, really, because it trickles down to the that's patients. pretty it's pretty important. That's like a really major role. Like you have a lot of power to really make a change there. Um, so that's pretty epic. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, no, that that is true. I. You know, it is one of the things I look forward to. I joke with my boss sometimes, and, and don't get me wrong, I love the clinical work that I do. I love the one-on-one and, and, and treating kids and interacting with kids when they're sick um, and helping in whatever way I can to make them feel better. Um, but I, I really, really um, get excited for, like, the community engagement stuff. Again, the, you know, the public health, the community engagement where you're you're changing the lives of many, um, you know, in, in potentially one engagement or one program. Okay. Um, well, this has been an absolutely amazing discussion. Thank you so much for talking to me, talking with me today. Is there anything else you would like to add about your experiences um, working at the hospital? Um, no, just to say that 
you know, I I do appreciate that now there is a vision. Um, I do, you know, leadership is so key to change. And so I'm always appreciative of, sorry, leadership that's intentional, what I always say, intentional and purposeful. And I'm always appreciative of making action steps and taking action steps. Um, And so I think that's what's beginning to happen now. Uh, There's a lot in the way that we need to do. Um, I will put a plug in for our um, community engagement program called CHAMP. It stands for Career Help Achievement and Advancement Mentorship Program. Uh, we have a liaisonship with, um, meaning the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh has a liaisonship with Arsenal Middle School uh, on 40th and Butler in Lawrenceville. And the idea behind that was to basically holistically nurture our local students, school students. And again, not wait for those kids to come to us when they're sick, but go and help them to live healthy lives okay, before that's we awesome. ever meet up with them. Um, and so we go to the middle school and we do things like teach them CPR and then they go home and teach their family CPR or cardiopulmonary resuscitation, I should say. We have a healthcare curriculum where they are exposed to various physicians of color to, to talk to them about different body systems uh, from cardiology to neurology, you name it. We have a wellness curriculum where we, you know, this is the key age where you're figuring out who you are. What you are, hygiene is a big deal, uh, you know. Um, and so not only we talk to the kids about, you know, if you have various hair types or skin types or whatever, you know, um, and you're coming from a place where you don't have a lot, these are some of the tips or, or the products that you can use to, you know, take care of your hair, take care of your skin, um, deodorant, things of that nature. And that we work in conjunction with Dr. Elena James, which is one of the few black dermatologists in, in the community and does her own community work as well. And, and in addition to that, we send all the families home with those products to use in addition to other things. Um, and so, and a lot more, we engage Pittsburgh EMS as well in this program, um, helping kids to identify, you know, the police versus um, EMS providers and seeing them as, you know, the people in blue are here for you. They're here to help in many ways, you know, um, and we can go on and on and on, but um, that's one of the programs that I'm really proud of. And in addition to that, when you integrated Pitt underrepresented, underrepresented medical students um, to help mentor the middle school students. But we realize that as we're all doing this, as we, meaning people of color, are all doing this, we're carrying the burden of that diversity tax, right? And we realized we wanted to be different in the sense that we didn't want the medical students to carry the burden of just mentoring the middle school students. So we mentor them as well. And we provide financial wellness through um, S&T Bank, led by um, Ms. Genevieve Odor. She is um, a Kenyan woman who is the vice president of one of the top banks in Pennsylvania. So also a person of color doing great things in that space. Um, and they have their own mentor and they have their own committee that they lead that, you know, they lead on, on, on their, on their initiatives, um, and they get stipends for it. So we help support the medical students who then help support the middle school students, you know, and it's like the creating this village in essence, this community, um, 
and support one another. That's really epic. Wow. So you started this program? So I, 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 Co-led this program. I would say it was inspired by our chair, my chair, Dr. Terry Dermody at Children's Hospital and Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who's the chair of adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital. Um, but I'm one of the co-leaders along with Dr. Noel Spears, who's also a colleague of mine in the emergency department and Dr. Uh, Kiki Torres, who's also in the department of adolescent medicine. So the three of us are the, what we call the faculty co-leads of this. Um, and so, again, don't do this alone. And I would be amiss to not mention, of course, the Arsenal uh, administrative head. So initially we started off with Principal Patty Camper, uh, who's now assistant superintendent of all Pittsburgh public schools. So she's moved on. Um, Nurse Brown, uh, Miss Tara Madix, who's uh, the science teacher there. So working with Arsenal administration. So there's a collective of us, Child Life School of Public Health, represented by Dr. Hoff- Beth Hoffman. Um, child life's represented by Colleen O'Connor at our own hospital. So it's it's really a great uh, collective of collaborate collaborative experts in various fields um, that help help everybody along. And not to mention the leadership at the School of Medicine as well, because without them, we wouldn't be able to help out the medical school students. Do you think that this program will inspire more children, especially POC children, to want to get involved in the medical field in the future? Yes, yes. We've already we already had, uh, interestingly enough, um, Dr. Conrad Smith, one of the cardiologists, came and did a demonstration on how they take care of the heart and brought some really cool tools to play with. And one of the guys, you know, one of the students was like, "I I think I want to be a cardiologist now." Um, not just a doctor, but I want to be a cardiologist, yeah, yeah. right? So, um, you know, we did stuff for National Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and we had the honor of having Dr. Diego Ganeco Chavez come and speak to the children in Spanish and English. Come to find out that two of those kids did not speak a lick of English. And so, you know, if Dr. Diego hadn't come and interacted with them in Spanish, a lot of the stuff that we were doing probably wouldn't have resonated, but then they were able to resonate. And some of them, that was their pediatrician. And so it was, it was a really great kind of wraparound. Um, and we also, you know, we stay in our lane in the way of science, technology, engineering, and math, right, STEM. But we also recognize that not everybody wants to do that, and we don't want to leave those kids behind. And so what we say is that the hospital is a basically a career model, right? You have every type of career you can imagine in a hospital except for a firefighter, right? So you have media in the hospital, you have accountants in the hospital, you have a myriad of healthcare providers in the hospital, right? Not just physicians, you have nurses and and physician's assistants and techs. Um, And uh, you have police officers and security folks, right? So there's a lot of different careers, cooks, chefs, uh, that the hospital represents that, you know, we try to connect these kids with. You know, our goal is to lead them to a level of higher education period, uh, and whatever we get there, but with a focus on STEM because we're trying to stay in our lane and don't want to get too far ahead in STEM and healthcare careers. Okay, awesome. Well, that's. Um, I think that's going to conclude our session today, but thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a fascinating episode, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Priya, for having me. I really... It was great talking with you about all of these things and continue to do the work that you're doing. Um, you inspire many of us as well um, in getting thank this you. information out there. So thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> 
Hi, everyone. That's the end of our show. Thanks again to Dr. Sylvia Owusu Ansa for talking with me today. And make sure to stay updated for the release of our next episode by following us on Instagram at multiracial at pit. Links are in bio. Thanks for listening, and I love you all. Bye.